Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of The Surge. Um, we're trying a new format here, so let me know if it's in any way a little bit clearer or better. Uh, we're switching to a sort of 16 to 9 format, which somebody emailed me extensive instructions on how to do, because I think that they were mildly frustrated by the previous uh, slide set that I was using. And so today we're going to go back to preparing for COVID-19 situation and um so today we'll be talking about lungs and respiratory failure for non-experts at them effectively and um this is a white belt to white belt level uh talk uh, i don't expect you to understand every concept here but you know i i think with the situation that we're in and with the discussions that are happening online um i think that it's very prudent to understand this at some point and at some level. And I would thoroughly recommend uh, Scott Weingart's uh, MCRIT talks on COVID-19 ventilation, uh, Rebel EM's talk on it as well. And I would also recommend Life in the Fast Lane, which I will be using some of the slides from, I think, uh, in future episodes just for the ventilation or the invasive component. But in general, um, all this is stuff that's freely available online. And just as a quick disclaimer, everybody does physiology differently, and everybody does respirology differently, and everybody does intensive care differently when it comes to the lungs. So don't expect anybody uh, to score a home run every day of the week when it comes to this, okay? Okay. Uh, Lung disease in general is something that if you've got uh, two respirologists, uh, two uh, respirologists, uh, two physiologists, and two uh, critical care guys, and you put them in a room, and you ask them to define ARDS, you wouldn't really have a true-to-life definition. Okay? Uh, one of them would probably quote the Berlin definition. The other one would quote a slightly older definition that they believe in more strongly. The third would uh, come up with a layman's definition that I would personally prefer of unexplainable uh, lung issues that are not directly related to a secondary causality agent and probably not related to a cardiac component. Um, probably some people would talk about inflammatory markers that go, go up and down in ARDS and somebody else would talk about something else. And they would get into an argument over it. And, and that is, in summary, why I think lungs are like, they're as much of a mystery as the lesser sac is for surgeons, right? So people who do a lot of hepatobiliary and upper GI stuff tend to recognize that the stomach, upper GI, esophagus, and the lesser sac are three areas of tiger country. And the lesser sac is like the Bermuda Triangle. Um, there are so many different variations in the anatomy that, in that area that, and so many different variations in, in how people work with that area that you're never going to get a true consensus. And it really, you will feel that there's a dearth of knowledge until you understand that knowledge. And that's why I think that from the start, it's extremely important that we talk about this at a basic level first, at a nice, easy, cellular level. Okay, and this isn't going to be a boring cellular level. This is going to be like a minute a slide, you'll see. So you open a textbook, basic biology textbook, you'll see a picture of alveoli, you'll see a picture of capillaries, and you'll see a picture of the interstitial space, and you'll see a picture with the words 
diffusion and uh, oxygen, carbon dioxide, and arrows going in opposite directions, right? And that's what you see. So that's white belt level. Blue belt level sees that there's an epithelial basement membrane, an alveolar epithelium, and an interstitial space. This interstitial space is your third space. It is the same third space that we talk about when we say third spacing. The thicker that area is, the area between the inside alveolus of the alveolus and the red blood cell, the more difficult it is for this diffusion phenomenon to occur. This diffusion phenomenon is the combination of oxygenation and ventilation. The diffusion phenomenon happens at a cellular, potentially even subcellular, molecular level. Okay, and it has something to do with the way that the hemoglobin compounds are designed. And I'll go through that too in a second. Okay, but the caliber of the capillaries, the permeability of the capillaries, the amount of fluid that's between the alveolus and the actual capillaries, the pressure within the alveolus as you take a deep breath in or have air pushed in through invasive ventilation and compresses these capillaries and compresses the flow through them, all of these things are factors that lead to respiratory failure. Okay, so conceptually, let's just talk about it again. We have a red blood cell. It contains CO2 from the body that it lets out into the alveolus, and it takes in oxygen. For it to do this in an efficient manner, we have to have a pressure gradient to improve the rate of diffusion, Turn it into more of an active transport situation. I agree with you. We have to have non-compressibility of the capillaries, so perfect pressure where you're expanding the, the, the alveolus enough to have a pressure gradient, but not so much that you're compressing the blood vessels. And the thickness of the epithelial basement membrane and of the interstitial space should be adequate enough. And the lymphatics should not be so permeable such that to make it too thick as a semi-permeable membrane. So that's what's happening at a cellular to a subcellular level, at a tissue level, at a micro level, okay? Now, the reason why we need to exchange the CO2 and the oxygen is because your red blood cells need oxygen. For them to efficiently take in that oxygen, there has to be a difference in the oxygen content of about about, okay, about, at capillary level. I'm not saying at arterial level. I'm saying at capillary level of about 40, 20 to 40. That's the difference between what we see at a cellular level and what we see at an arterial level should be about 40-ish. This translates to about, you know, sort of 40-ish on the venous side, okay? And that produces a a gradient, an oxygenation gradient, that allows for the oxygen to get into the uh, actual tissues of the body. Whether it's the renal cells, whether it's the heart, whether it's the coronaries, whether it's your muscles, where you're flexing your biceps at the beach. We don't do that anymore because of COVID-19. But if we did that, by the way, nobody's going to have a summer body, huh? Let's, let's, let's be honest here. Anyway, moving on. That's what's happening at a cellular level for the rest of the body. At the same time, your type of metabolism produces waste products, including CO2. For the CO2 to be transmitted across, it also needs a pressure gradient. 
And that pressure gradient doesn't have to be that high or that low. It has to be only about five because it's not cellularly dependent. It's not dependent on the hemoglobin itself, right? It's a shorter distance. At a chemical level, your body, because of the way that the hemoglobin molecule works, can increase hydrogen ion, can increase its ability to get rid of oxygen peripherally and take oxygen in, in the lung based on its needs. And that's because hydrogen ion concentration, so pH, acidosis versus alkalosis, CO2 content, one could argue, also contributed to pH. Temperature and overall nutritional status, bisphosphoglycerate levels, all contribute to your body's ability to saturate and desaturate hemoglobin of oxygen. So your delivery system at a chemical level, at a biochemical level, will augment itself based on these things. If your body is producing more CO2, you're more likely to get rid of oxygen at a, a tissue level and vice versa. When you look at the mechanics, it's a, it's a similar thing, but the mechanics are there to allow for the diffusion to be maximized and to allow for this phenomenon to occur across as many red blood cells as possible. Now, from the outset, we're not going to be talking about heart-lung interactions because it's not COVID-relevant yet. Yes, I realize that there's an angiotensin II situation happening in COVID. And I do realize that the second hit of death in COVID occurs because of a severe profound cardiomyopathy that has been described as a, a person who literally just conks out collapses completely, vasopressors are on, and boom, right? But I do realize this. But it's 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 a little bit broad and does not help you ventilate. And today's talk is about ventilation. We talked about hemodynamics. I think ventilation should be something we talk about today. And then I'll be more than happy to give a dedicated talk on heart-lung interactions in primary and secondary pathologies and renal cardiac axis and its effect on overall ventilation status. I really don't mind linking pneumonia to respiratory center metabolism in the brain, okay? I can do that later. But for today's talk, there are certain key concepts. So we talked about the diffusion concept at a cellular level. We talked about the molecular concept of acidosis having a profound impact on your rate of oxygen exchange. Now we're going to talk about lung mechanics. For your lung, to, for you to be able to take a deep breath in, your muscles contract, making your rib cage expand. As your ribcage expands, it pulls the lungs up because you're producing a negative pressure gradient using your muscles. Now, there are primary muscles such as the intercostals and the diaphragm, and there are secondary muscles such as the pectoralis major and minor, shoulder muscles, and the abdominal muscles. You use them in that sequence as you get more and more tired. That's why runners tend to actually feel pain in their bellies towards the end. And you'll see that as, as marathon runners run for longer and longer, during their, their peak, they're using their accessory muscles as the rest of their homeostasis kicks in. Okay, Now, your pressures at a pleural level outside the lung, between the lung and the chest wall, get transmitted to the alveolus. And these transmitted pressures cause dynamic changes in lung volume. Okay, so there's a reciprocal dynamic change in lung volume. The higher the pressure, 
the smaller the lung volume. The lower the pressure towards the negative, the bigger the lung volume. Okay, This is if you are breathing spontaneously. Your compliance is the rate of change for any given pressure. Your compliant is the rate of change of this graph for any given pressure. The rate of change during lung during inspiration and expiration. Your compliance theoretically is at both its highest and its lowest mid-breath. Theoretically, right? When you're running at about between 200 and 300 cc's. There are certain pathologies at a cellular level and at a tissue level, such as emphysema or pulmonary fibrosis, that can increase and reduce your compliance. Now, you will notice that, that diseases that make you have less alveoli, such as emphysema, and I know we call it COPD now, but let's call it emphysematous lung with COPD. Let's, have, let's do that instead. Tend to have more compliance than pulmonary fibrosis lung, where the lung tissue is replaced. So when you have less lung tissue density, you have higher rates of compliance. When you have more lung tissue density, you have lower rates of compliance. Where compliance is measured against not the alveolar pressure, but the transpulmonary pressure, basically your esophageal pressure. Okay, I know it's not really your esophageal pressure. Okay, um, If you read any paper by Sheldon Magder, this stuff is, is a lot easier to understand. But we're going to call it that for now. We're going to call it extrapleural pressure, or transesophageal pressure, transpulmonary pressure, and we're going to call it alveolar pressure, okay? Now, this is not a phenomenon to do with the lung tissue alone. If I were to take your lungs and I were to subject them to the same pressure changes, but fill them with saline instead of air or jello instead of air, I would reduce your compliance and the compliance window itself. And so, quote-unquote, fluid-filled, secretion-filled lungs tend to have lower compliance. When you have a lower compliance, you require more pressure to produce the same volumes. I know that the, the blue marked low compliance graph does not say that. But I am saying, when I say volume, I mean minute ventilation type of volume. I don't mean single breath, physiological, all factors considered volume. Okay, And that's the way that you should remember it. So, uh, thick lungs due to water secretions, etc., have lower compliance. Thin lungs, due to emphysema, destructive forces, cavitating pneumonias, yes, the bigger cavitating pneumonias, tend to have higher compliance, higher changes per unit volume pressure. Now, for you to breathe comfortably, you need a tidal volume. Your tidal volume will vary between 3 to 4, liter, three to four cc's per kg, in certain ventilator settings. But in real life, the tidal volume is like the ebb and flow of the tide if you were to measure per cc. It's very hard to measure. We tend to use weight as a surrogate marker, but I don't like that. And it varies according to a lot of other things. But in general, I would say that your tidal volume would be between 400 and 800 cc's. And that's just me making it up. When you really need to take a breath in, you can go up to 
600 cc, 6,000 cc's, 6 liters, right? Your functional residual capacity is the amount of lung volume that you can't access, even if you tried, right? Typically when you're breathing. Your vital capacity is the total lung volume that you can access. The residual volume is in effect, in effect, dead space. Okay, it's part of your dead space. So the residual volume is the part of the lung that you can never access for multiple reasons. One of them is that your ribcage is not flexible enough. The second one is because the pressure to overcome a completely collapsed lung is extremely high. And that's why people with lung collapse have a problem. Okay. Now, VQ mismatch occurs in different zones of the lung. I'm not going to dwell on this paradigm because for COVID patients, it's not it is a problem, it's not a huge problem, and there are easier ways to explain it, which I'll go through in respiratory failure. When you think about respiratory failure, you think about a ventilation problem, high CO2, or hypoxemia. And most of the other podcasts have been talking about the hypoxemia and the high CO2 without explaining why they happen. And, you know, I'm trying to fill in gaps more so than take over somebody else's thing or reinvent the wheel, Okay. When you think about hypoxemia, there are four main reasons why this happens. If it's a pure hypoxemia, if it's a pure hypoxemia, I'm going to say it a third time, if it's a pure hypoxemia. Hypoventilation, yes, it can create a mixed situation, but in, in circumstances that are slightly different than what we're talking about today. VQ mismatch, right to left chunting, and diffusion limitations, such as secretions, etc. Hypoventilation is your head-to-toe approach that you've been taught in many emergency medicine books. I know I learned it off of Rosen's way back when, right? You start off with the brain looking at CNS depressions, such as toxicological issues, over-sedation, uh, ischemia stroke of the brain, high, uh, pontanations, intracranial hemorrhages. Obesity hypoventilation is mainly because of pressure over the, the upper airway and the lungs. Think of it as a wake-up structural sleep apnea in a weird, weird way, Okay. Impaired neural conduction can happen because of multiple neurological issues, some of them hydrogenic, some of them non-hydrogenic, some of them medically related, and some of them due to actual toxic problems like aminoglycosides. It can be transient too. Then you have impaired muscle weakness, such as in nutrition, muscular dystrophy, severe hypothyroidism, and then you have poor chest wall elasticity. When you talk about VQ mismatch, for the most part, it's because of COPD, obstructive lung disease, pulmonary vascular diseases such as pulmonary emboli, and interstitial diseases. So diseases that cause an increase in dead space and non-accessible lung volume, which is called what? Let's go back. Residual volume. All right, guys? I wish I knew this stuff when I was sitting my fellowship exam. It would have made it way easier. It's called residual volume, Okay. Go back, look at that graph on your own. Feel free to use these slides, by the way. You can take pictures of them. I still haven't figured out how to put up uploads. I will at some point. When you look at hypoxemia de novo from other causes, most of the time, no matter what the cause is, raising the O2 in and of itself is enough. And I think that that's what people are talking about when they're saying high-altitude sickness, propharia situation in COVID-19 patients. I think that what they're seeing is an initial hypoxemia that turns into a mixed respiratory failure. I really don't think that they're looking at something that is completely out of this world here. I think that it's something that we all met before, 
but we failed to recognize because we wouldn't have been called for it necessarily, right? They would have probably, a good nurse would have probably increased the FiO2 or a good R2 would have probably increased the FiO2, maybe done a recruitment if you have that on, on a protocol, and they would have called you back after the fact, right? Other reasons include right-to-left shunting. This may be because you have an alveolar bypass phenomenon or because you have hyperinflated lung. Uh, or, sorry, the opposite of hyperinflated lung. You may have alveoli that aren't being ventilated but are being perfused. So pneumonia, ARDS, atelectasis, and lung collapse. Or it may be a diffusion limitation, ultimately, like it could be cystic fibrosis type of situation. Hypercapnia, on the other hand, is the second cause of respiratory failure. And you need to understand that I'm not saying that these are segregated causes. I'm saying that when you're ventilating somebody, these are two concepts that are separate, but lead to a combined tactical strategy, which we'll talk about in the next session. Okay? The causes of hypercapnia include a decreased mechanical volume, so inability to take deep enough breaths, right? And, you know, that's a bit of a problem there, right? Uh, causes can be drive, so you're not breathing fast enough, you're not breathing strong enough, or you're not breathing enough for what you need. So it can be drive. It can be because of increased metabolism due to sepsis, inflammatory process, burns, tick, whatever you feel like using. Or it can be because of a neuromuscular issue. It can be also because of increased dead space. So rapid shallow breathing, PE, COPD, or uh, interstitial pulmonary fibrosis. Or it can be because of increased CO2 production, such as in fever, thyroid toxicosis, uh, increased catabolism, uh, sepsis, steroids, overfeeding, etc. Now, when I talk about dead space, I'm talking about ventilation without perfusion. I'm also talking about autopeep. Okay? And we'll talk about autopeep a little bit later, but it's when you hyperinflate the lung to the point where at alveolar level, the pressure is so high that it's compressing the capillaries. The pressure is overcoming mean systemic capillary filling pressure or mean systemic end capillary pressure. Okay, which is actually calculated with this one. It's not a true number on this one. Very few people know how to measure it. It's way over my head. It's outside the scope of this talk. And these are some examples of how that happens, right? And the difference between a shunt and dead space is a shunt is when you can't get the air in, but you can, but the capillary is well perfused. Dead space is when the air is getting in, but the capillary is not perfused. Okay, and so therefore it can't get back to the heart. Excessive PEEP will cause this dead space phenomenon, number one, because it compresses the alveoli, number two, because it doesn't let the air out, right? The easiest way for you to figure out what you need to do with a ventilator is the blood gas. It's the most accessible. Take a picture of this, but effectively, if you have a high CO2 problem, the chances are that it's going to be a hypoventilation issue or it's going to be a VQ mismatch issue, more so than anything else. If you have a alveolar O2 problem, then the chances are it can be anything, and all bets are off. If you have an arterial O2 problem, and the AA gradient is shifted a little bit, it can be most likely a hypoventilation issue or an oxygenation issue. Okay, You can notice that the oxygen saturation does not help you as much as you think. The venous oxygen saturation and the venous CO2 helps you to an extent, and it's just as good as the arterial or the alveolar CO2, okay? And that's something that you, you, you need to sort of be cognizant of, that venous blood gas will help you with 
ventilation problems, more so. A arterial blood gas is mainly for oxygenation problems, but can also help you with ventilation problems. A combination of the two makes the decision-making process better. Now, uh, one of the things that I, I'd like to get across is that COVID-19 is not ARDS, but I also don't believe in treating it like a hyperbaric disease and trying to not ventilate people, not put them on invasive ventilation. So, uh, like, again, I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just saying words matter to me, and they matter in general. When you say try not to ventilate somebody, that's a misnomer. That's that's pretty bad. When you tell me not to put somebody on a mechanical invasive ventilator, that makes sense to me. At least I can have a, a discussion about it. And I'm, I'm not picking on anybody in particular. Uh, I'm, I'm just saying that the Twitter sphere is full of people talking about how they feel that uh, the dogma of the way that we're doing things with ventilators is bad. And the way that we tend to deal with the problem is bad because they're noticing that these patients are just chilling with a good sat and you know the saturation is a little bit lower than you would like it to be it's around about 88 87 but they're just chilling well you're going to need to look at the ct to figure out why that happens and then once you figure out why that happens you'll figure out why trying to label it as ARDS or trying to label it as a porphyria or trying to label it as a weird and kooky thing that, 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 that you know, it, it's not, right? It, it cannot be decompression sickness. It can't be high altitude sickness. And the reason why it can't be is because there's no real central component. High altitude sickness has a central component. All due respect to everybody. If you read basic respiratory physiology, and by basic, I don't mean easy. I mean basic. I don't mean rudimentary. I mean basic. It's complex. But it's also basic. It's complex in the sense that it's complicated. It requires a lot of reading to, to, to get to, to the actual central issue. But, you know, it really is not right to say that it is congruent or in any way should be treated as a altitude sickness phenomenon. Because it's not an altitude sickness phenomenon. It isn't. And here's why. This is what the CT for an ARDS patient looks like. First, there's an underlying lung pathology that's neither here nor there. You have your ground glass appearance, which also appears with COVID-19. But you also have effusions. You have a little bit of lymphadenopathy. And it's just this diffuse thing, right? This is how novel coronavirus starts. This is how COVID-19 starts, okay? Um, as you can see, there are areas of ground glass appearance that are starting in the periphery instead of centrally. They're in the periphery. These ground glass textures look slightly different. I agree with you. And the reason why they look different is because they're starting at the cellular level. Going back to the first slide that we talked about. The cells are getting thicker, and so the oxygen exchange is getting harder. Simple stuff. The cells are getting thicker, and so therefore the oxygen exchange are getting, is getting harder. By cells, I agree with you. You're going to correct me. Send me an angry email. It's fine. But what I really mean is the gap between the alveolus, the air in the alveolus, and the capillary and that red cell floating in it. That gap area, all right, that gap area there, is getting thicker. 
It's getting thicker in a similar manner to anything where you look at that CT and it happens. It's peripheral. It's happening in small buds. It's happening in select areas of the lung that are towards the base. We're more likely to inhale aerosolized agents. It's more likely to be the entry point, whether it's from the aerosolized agents or it's from the secretions themselves. And you know what's funny? It's causing a local edema phenomenon. And if you look a little bit more closely, it's starting to compress the bronchi and the blood vessels. Kooky, huh? A little bit weird, right? It's sort of, it's, it's an acutely ground glassy thing. It doesn't quite look like a fibrosis, right? It's, it's not your idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis or your interstitial pulmonary fibrosis or your sarcoidosis lung, right? It's not, it's not that yet because that, that, that pulls on things. This isn't pulling, this is compressing. And it's even more there after eight days or nine days of treatment without being intubated. And you're starting to see it form along the blood vessels themselves, along the uh, artery and venous territories, right? And you're not really seeing air bronchograms. You're seeing tethering of the bronchi, right? And so that's why I think it makes sense that you have an oxygenation problem at first that's very subtle. Because these changes are very subtle. And for you to have a drive to breathe, it has to be either a pH problem or a profound oxygenation problem. Do you remember the pressure gradient that I talked about in the beginning? It has to be that type of situation whereby that gradient is less than 20, right? It's less than 20. And so saying that the SAT's 88, I don't know, man. Like, I wouldn't treat this as a, as a um, decompressive sickness type of physiology. Right, just looking at that CT, clearly there's something there, and clearly this is not just a, a hemoglobin porphyria issue, which it may be. Right, the, the, my understanding is that there is some molecular analysis that points towards that, but all viruses affect hemoglobin to an extent. You know, you can argue for and against, but they all didn't do. And then you're starting to see something else happen here, and, and that's that you're getting plural inclusions, you're getting plural deposits too, where the arrows are. You're getting interstitial deposits. You're getting a little bit of thickening. And still, no major lymphadenopathy. Huh? Like, lymph nodes are a little bit more prominent. I agree with you, but nothing like... This isn't your honking big pneumonia yet. Not, not, not in terms of the lymphadenopathy. Your mediastinum is clean. This is a lung field problem, an interstitial problem, a compression of the bronchi problem, because th those pulmonary segments are, are engorged, right? And you're also getting pleural deposits. So now you're having a, a, a respiratory dynamics problem, a mechanical problem. Going back to the compliance slide. So your compliance is now changed. Now, I would predict that the compliance is worse. So you have a disease pathology that doesn't look like ARDS on the, from the outset, right? It just doesn't. Uh, you saw the pictures of ARDS here. Let's look at them again, right? That's ARDS. It's not ARDS. Sick patient, but not ARDS. But it has a compliance problem. It started off as an oxygenation problem where people thought that it could potentially get better. And it has plural deposits. So there's your compliance, there's your lung mechanics, and there's the thickness, the distance that, that, that the gas has to travel through. Three different problems, right? An oxygenation problem initially, then a ventilation problem as your metabolism kicks in too, right? With sepsis. And then you have this compression problem. And this is just, uh, it's, uh, it's free and it's out there. Uh, it's totally royalty free. 
but this is a 3D um, reconstruction CULT. Just looking at the bronchi that are affected and how they're compressed, and where the interstitial disease is. And you can see that they marry each other. Let's look at that again. Right? They marry each other. It's the same disease territory, right? Conceivably. And you're getting that compressive effect, right? And so that's why, I, all due respect to everybody, listen, I'm a surgeon at the end of the day, man. Um, call it what it is, but I think that these patients are probably going to be PEEP dependent as the time goes on, and in ventilating them might be a good strategy when you put everything in context. And, you know, if you look at what they're doing in China, they're giving you this app for free now, because all these changes are pathognomonic. When something's pathognomonic, to an extent it's diagnostic, so I know that the Italians now, especially at Humanitas Hospital, they, they're, they're starting to do screening CT scans for all their pre-op patients regardless of their COVID status. They are pathognomonic, okay? And, and they have a deep learning algorithm that can tell you what's there and what isn't and, and how likely it is to be COVID-19. But the fact that they're pathognomonic also means that they're part of the disease presentation. And I would contend just from the outset that one of the main reasons to ventilate these patients is because the ventilator will translate for you what the patient needs. I'm not saying to ventilate them as a diagnostic maneuver. Do not say that I said that. I did not say that. I'm saying when you do ventilate them, the picture becomes clearer. And maybe doing a CT scan for that patient who you suspect has a phenotype that is congruent with a hyperbaric altitude sickness, call it what you will, uh, stable hypoxemia situation, doing that CT will tell you which one of those would fail your um, non-invasive strategy. And so I would contend that if you're looking at the Berlin definition of ARDS, let's look at it together. So we do have bilateral opacities. We do have respiratory failure that is not explainable by cardiac failure or fluid overload. I hate that term, by the way. And, you know, our echoes are nice and clean. And we have changing and dynamic PF ratios. So I don't think that it's wrong to use ARDSnet protocol if you reach the point of intubation, okay? When you look at ARDS versus PE versus uh, high-altitude sickness versus CHF, I would say that the gold standard when you're working up your patients and you're not sure what's going on, even if you're not doing COVID assays, is to do um, a chest X-ray, echo, CTA. You know, I prefer to do it with contrast all the time. The yield is higher. Arterial blood gas and a CBC with a procalcitonin. That's my preference. It doesn't have to be yours. But this is my sort of workout. And lastly, so the next talk I'll be talking about escalation of... of to mechanical ventilation but just before we get there when you look on up to date and i'm glad that they made this stuff for free now we have traditionally taught everybody to go nasal cannula simple mask partial rebreather mask non-rebreather mask hood tent self-inflating ventilation bag and flow-inflating ventilation bag and then intubate them, okay? I would say that the only viable options for us here are nasal cannula, simple mask, and non-breather mask outside of dedicated centers. 
In centers with good RTs, with high-flow nasal cannulas, I would use them. I would not use BiPAP because of the aerosol risk. And that's all I'm going to go to here. So you start off with your nasal cannula, you work your way up to your simple mask, your non-rebreather mask, and then I'd work my way up to high-flow nasal cannula. And that's when I'll try and do the spit roast maneuver where you prone them and stuff if you want. But keep the MPO if you're going to do that, obviously. And if none of that works, then I would just, boom, just intubate them. And that's my personal bias. It's less anecdotal than other things that I've heard online. Uh, more anecdotal than I would feel very confidently saying you should do it. I would say that that's what I would do. And let's leave it at that. Lastly, I'd like to say that if you are considering doing a permissive hypoxemia strategy, that you should know that people with bronchial asthma, COPD, cardiovascular risk factors, diabetes, hypertension, ACE inhibitor use potentially, and 72 hours with no improvement are more likely to fail that type of therapy and more likely to die as well. So these are your high-risk patients. They also talk about CRP uh, levels and ratios with lymphopenia and certain CT findings, which I'll probably get into in a dedicated talk. But these are the things that I would look out for when considering ventilation in these patients as an invasive means. So the take-home is the lungs are dynamic. They're very complicated, as you just saw. Uh, dealing with lung pathologies is extremely complicated. If you look at the bigger context of things, this is a lot to get through. Review it once, twice, and three times. Whenever you're thinking about what the hell's going on and you're lost, start at the microscopic level, look at the physiology and blood flow problem. And then look at the macro level with the mechanics problem. And the next talk is going to be about a multifaceted tactical plan. All right. Right now, the only things that I'd like you to recognize is the types of respiratory failure, conceptually how to filter your approach towards them, the escalation of oxygenation, what you can and can't do in COVID-19 patients, what the CT findings for COVID-19 patients are and how they're different from ARDS and how they're the same, and develop your cutoff for what you should do and have discussions within your center about it. Because this is a new disease and trying to compare it to something else, I don't know, man. Every day is a learning experience for me with these patients and that's the truth. Have a good day and please subscribe. Um, you know, it's a tough time for everybody. Um, but I think that we're gonna get through it, all right? Hang in there, and there's a lot to take in. You know, go through it a couple of times. And let me know uh, if you guys would like online sessions or something organized for your hospital, uh, organized for your group. Uh, if you'd like us to all be online at the same time, just uh, email me. I might include my email with the next slide set or in the show notes. Or DM me on Twitter or something, okay? Or Reddit. I I'm more so on Reddit these days. Have a good day, and uh, please subscribe.